0: Hi, this is Jim Lyon. You're listening to Viewpoint. Viewpoint on Expedition. Today, I'm on a boat sitting in the still calm of the Sea of Galilee. That's right, the Sea of Galilee, made famous in the New Testament. One of the most historic and sacred places on earth. The Sea of Galilee is actually a large freshwater lake, It is almost 700 feet below sea level. It sits in a bowl of mountains. This morning, as the sun has risen, the blue of the water reflects the blue of the sky, contrasted against the earth tones and patches of green of the mountains surrounding. The edge and crest of the mountains that surround this lake are the same that Jesus saw 20 centuries ago. And when you visit the Holy Land, you can see many places where it's thought that Jesus walked And on those places, there have been constructed over time, over centuries, monuments that bear witness to the sacred things, the world-changing things that took place there. But at the Sea of Galilee, it's so vast that no one can build stone upon stone a church over it. No one can create a shrine. It can only be as God created it in the beginning, a vast inland sea situated in a bowl of mountains. Now, most of us that have heard of the Sea of Galilee recall that it is a place of miracles. And many of those miracles associated with the sea have to do with storms. And this morning, as I'm with a group of 40 others on a wooden boat in the middle of the lake, it is so calm, it's hard to imagine the sea stormy. But actually, because of the topography of the land, because of the sweep and height of the mountains on some sides, in fact, this morning you can see the crest of snow on Mount Hermon, the famous biblical peak that is the highest point in this part of the world. And from the high cold air of those places, air can run down into this bowl so far below sea level where it's generally warmer. And the conversion zone of of those drafts, of the cold air meeting the hot air, that's what creates the volatility of the lake. And that's why storms are not unknown here, even in modern time. And that's why the stories of Jesus on the lake have so much veracity, because the storm stories of Jesus on the lake are the stuff of nature still in play today. Now, when I tell you about Jesus and the Sea of Galilee and storms, there are several stories that might come to mind, but perhaps the one that is most popularly known, that has given us even a phrase that describes someone who is, well, just better than the rest, it's when Jesus walked on water. You've heard it said, oh, he can walk on water. Or maybe you've heard it said, he thinks he can walk on water, but the fact that someone walked on water from this story has become a part of the English idiom. It refers to anyone who may be spiritually connected to God or someone who has power beyond the norms. He's, he's so all that that he can walk on water. Actually, I believe that that English idiom is drawn from real history, that Jesus actually walked on the water that I can see right now.
1: You are our life, when death is all around. You are our peace, when all else seems to fail. You are our strength, when our weakness overcomes. You are, yes you are.
0: The story is told in three Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke, curiously, does not mention it. In all three of the other accounts, though, it is always immediately following the feeding of the 5,000, which follows immediately the beheading of John the Baptist. That's important as we read the story, because these events were defined not just by the nature around Jesus, but by the emotions and journey of Jesus. John the Baptist was the cousin of Christ he was beheaded unfairly by Herod, who could not bear any longer his teaching about the sanctity of marriage and, and how you should not take your brother's wife to be your own. His wife, Salome, was so furious at the teaching of John, she demanded that his head be produced on a platter, and so it was. And when Jesus heard that, right afterwards, he went into the wilderness to be alone, but the crowds followed him and they were without food. So he fed them famously in the story of the feeding of 5,000. And then in all three of the gospel accounts, right after that, it actually says immediately after that, he said to his disciples, I want you to go down to the seashore, get in a boat and cross over. And his intention was to remain behind to pray. And that's where I'm going to pick up the narrative from Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately after this, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. And even as I read that, I can see. I see the hills. I imagine the sun setting behind them. And I imagine Jesus somewhere out there in the hills by himself praying alone, while his disciples come out here onto the water, where I am now a sail. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from the land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. John's gospel alone tells us how far out to sea they were, about five to six kilometers. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water, When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Do not be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified, and he began to sink. "'Save me, Lord,' he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. "'You have so little faith,' Jesus said. "'Why did you doubt me?' When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. "'You really are the Son of God,' they exclaimed." The story is so fantastic and so defies other human experience that throughout history, people have imagined it to be myth. In modern time, as the scripture has been examined with a critical eye, many people have dismissed this narrative as pious fiction, a kind of story invented to make some point, a kind of Aesop's fable that might remind us of some truth that we shouldn't forget, but actually could not be grounded in real history. But as I'm on this boat, as I'm actually here, where these events pretend to take place, I believe them to be real. I think it actually happened. All the details of the story are matched by what I can see. All of the history of this place is matched in the narrative in the story of weather. The only part of it that stretches us is the capacity of Jesus to defy nature and to do what no other man can do. Oh, but wait a minute. If you can accept the premise that Jesus rose from the dead, if you can imagine that someone murdered on a cross and laid into a tomb, can actually come back to life, then walking on this water should be small stuff. Jesus, he is the son of God, the very person of God in human form. The word become flesh. When you see Jesus, you see your father in heaven. You wonder about God? You want to know who he is and what he's like? Don't search for some Byzantine portrait. Don't imagine some kind of ritual. You try and see Jesus, flesh and bone, humanity as we, and yet also divine. When you see him, you see God. He appropriated for himself the very name of God when he said, I am, I am. The same words with which the burning bush spoke to Moses when Moses said, who shall I say is sending me when Pharaoh confronts me down in Egypt? And the bush said, God speaking, said, I am. I am, the present tense, who has no past and no future, but is always present, who is outside of time. Jesus is the I am. Can he walk on this water? Absolutely. But as you think about that, think about also the humanity of Jesus. His cousin has been murdered. He has tried to find some alone time, and yet the crowds have followed him. The hustle and bustle of real life chases and nips at his heels. He can't stop to gather his thoughts. He is God, but he's also man. And as he feeds the 5,000 and works wonders so that they might go to their homes with a full stomach, he now craves some time alone again. At night, when no one can see him, when there are no flashlights and no searchlights and no cars, he finds solitude. And even to his closest friends, he says, could you just leave me alone for a moment? get into the boat and sail. I'll, I'll get there. How will you get there? Not to worry. I'll just meet you on the other side. They ask no questions. They get in the boat. He prays. This is so important because the miracles of Jesus are consequent to his communion with God. And if Jesus needs to have time alone to pray, so do we. And as I look at these hills and think about Jesus finding a quiet place, I must remind myself that where I live, no matter how big the city, no matter how congested the street, I need to find a place where I can meet God alone. Our capacity to deal with the storms of life is hinged on our capacity to meet God personally alone. It was true for Jesus, the Son of Man. It is true for us. But then, having been renewed with a reservoir of communion with his Father in heaven, he finds himself racing ahead of the disciples on the water, and they are lost in a storm. It does not seem as if the storm was necessarily threatening their lives, but it was a hard work. They had no motor in their boat. They had to row against the wind and the howl. And in the night, they see a figure walking. They're terrified. And this is another lesson for us. We crave the manifestation of God in our lives, but when He actually does come in such a tangible way, we cannot deny, we're afraid. We prefer the isolation of ourselves from the wonder and the power, the purity and the holiness of heaven. And when it comes close by, even in the storms of life, sometimes we're afraid. It's so natural. It's so human. That's why these stories live for me. It's because they're so much like me and so much like you. And as Jesus comes by, he understands their fear. He does not condemn them. He does not just ignore them. He does not make fun of them. He says, don't be afraid. The people who follow in the footsteps of Jesus must always be the ones who walk into every storm, into every crisis, and be the ones who understand because they've been in communion with God himself. Do not be afraid. Are there any ever sweeter words spoken than this? For perhaps the words of Jesus as he says, peace be with you. But second unto that, do not be afraid. Even when Jesus is born, the angels appear, and the shepherds are terrified. And what do the angels say? It is the word from heaven to those of us who are still frail in our mortal beings. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Jesus comes close to them, and Peter is so astonished that Jesus is divine nature and walking, that in a moment, he loses all of his inhibitions, and his faith childlike calls him to try the impossible. It's a famous story. So many sermons preached, so many lessons to be learned. Peter, you know, has a gospel. Well, that's what we believe. There are four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, written, we think, originally for a Jewish audience In the way in which it's framed and the way in which it presents the teaching of Jesus in certain cycles and the way in which it refers to the Old Testament. Matthew never refers to God, never speaks the name of God. He speaks of the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of God. This is typical of the Jewish period of the time the reverence for the very concept of God. The other gospels use the terminology kingdom of God. We think that Luke, of course, is the physician. He's a Gentile. It's the only one of the gospels written by someone who was not born in the Jewish community. And he meticulously identifies places and names and dates with which to tie the stories of Jesus. John, this disciple who walked with Jesus and loved him so intimately. This John writes a gospel that is filled with deep theology. It is John that gives us so much insight into the deep knowledge of Christ. Ah, Mark. Mark is the oldest of the four Gospels. John Mark, the scribe of Peter, we believe. We know this from Peter's letters where he tells us that John Mark is actually writing his words down. We think that Peter was illiterate and he could not read or write for himself and that would be very common for a fisherman on this sea in those days. But his story has to be told. We actually think that the Gospel named Mark is the story of Peter. It's Peter's recollection of his life with Jesus, transcribed by Mark, whose name is born. When you understand that, in Mark's gospel, it's the one that does not mention the walking on water. It makes sense, because if I was telling this story, I don't want everyone to remember the part where I failed. But Matthew remembers it. <laughs> Matthew gets it, so does John. And in these other stories of the walking on water, Peter climbs out of the boat. It's extraordinary because. When Peter understands who Jesus is and is unencumbered by any human doubt, he's able to do what Jesus does. And oh, is this our life lesson? Because we are so encumbered by our fears and our doubts and our experience, all the ways we've been disappointed, all the times our expectations have not been met, all the things that we run ahead, and the devil whispers in our ears, be afraid. That's the stuff of human life in this world, imperfect But for that one minute, for that one window on this lake where we are right now, Peter had shed himself of all that, and he was able to do what Jesus did. He walked on the water. It was only when he became afraid again, when his fears overcame him, and they veiled his pure sense of who Jesus was, that he began to sink in the water. But even in his little faith, remember, when you see Jesus, you see God. Even in his little faith, Jesus reaches out and holds him by the hand. Jesus knows who we are. He understands our limitations. He comprehends how vulnerable we are to the wind and the sea and the fear of this world. Oh, why did you doubt me, Peter? You know, the way in which you say something, the tone of your voice and the emphasis of syllable can really communicate. And we don't have a recording of what Jesus actually said. Did he say, why did you doubt me, Peter? Every parent knows that tone of voice. But I think it was much more gentle. Oh, Peter, why did you doubt me? It's okay, come on, get back in the boat. Because Jesus is always interested in helping us get to the destination he has appointed for us. I asked you to go to the other side. The storm has come up you've made a good faith effort to step out and walk with me. You got afraid not to worry. I'm still going to see you safely to the place I have called you to be. And friends, as we're here at the Sea of Galilee, wherever you are in life today, whatever your journey, whatever the storm, whatever the crisis, whatever the loss, whatever the disappointment, whatever the expectation unmet, whatever your fear, know this. Jesus has a place for you to arrive and he is committed to helping you get there. Now, if we like Peter could only see him even but for this minute without any of the veil that this life brings to us, you can reach out and see him right now with us. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, we want you to know that you can right now see Jesus. How? Take a minute and just pray. Our Father, today we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ of Galilee, who walked on this water where I now sail, whose flesh was warmed by the same sun that now is warming mine, whose eyes saw the same blue sky, blue water, and brown earth that I can see. We surrender our lives to you, Lord. We admit that we, in our natural state of being, are not worthy, but we know by the work of Jesus on the cross He can make us worthy, cover us with his blood. By faith, we own him as Lord, and we pray that he will take us safely to the other shore, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm standing next to Mike Fackler. He's the pastor of the Highland Park Community Church in Casper, Wyoming. Mike, good morning to you. Hey, good morning, Jim. And uh, we're here on the Sea of Galilee. It's Mike's first visit to this uh, very sacred ground. Give me an idea, Mike, of just how it feels. What's running through your head? Well, it's all very emotional uh, because this is where Jesus walked. So you probably give me to cry on camera a little bit. But um, just to know that Jesus was in this area and to follow in his footsteps is a very overwhelming moment as you've traveled through the Holy Land with our CBH team, has there been an idea or a thought that's kind of jumped into your heart and head, maybe that you didn't expect, or, or, or maybe it's gone deeper, something you already believe, but now it's deeper? Well, you, you believe in the crucifixion and you believe in the resurrection, but to stand in those places and just to know that Jesus was thinking about you when he was, you know, God was thinking about you, wow. You're a follower of Jesus, Mike. How long have you been? 35 years. Pretty young guy to have been following Jesus for 35 years, but uh, in that journey, did you ever imagine you'd be right here? No, this was so far out of reach that I never thought. We're so glad you're here, Mike. Thanks for coming alongside.
1: Jesus, be the center, be my source. Be my light, Jesus. Jesus, be the center.
0: Or if you'd like to know more about this Jesus about whom we speak, give us a call. Just dial this number 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're always by the phone. So glad to hear from you. 1-800-757-VIEW. Toll free. That's 1-800-757-8439. We'll pick up the phone. We want to hear from you. We will pray with you. We will attempt to steer you to answers for any questions in life you might have. If you prefer, just check us out online. Our website CBH, Christians Broadcasting Hope, CBHViewpoint.org. You can read about the ministry there. You can actually see photographs and some video of our expedition just now to the Holy Land. And you can also send us an email. We will reply. Or at the last, if you prefer, just reach out to us by post. Send me a letter. Address it to Jim Lyon, Viewpoint, Post Office Box 2420, Anderson, Indiana, 46018, USA. But whether you reach out to us by phone, online, or by mail, please let us hear from you this week. For all of us at the Viewpoint team, for all of us at Church of God Ministries, which is the host of our broadcast, thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us again next week as we take you to one more spectacular moment and place in the walk of Jesus in this world. Stay tuned.